you pull the chart back historically and, and the interest rate levels that we're at now are not abnormal by any stretch of the imagination. I think people just wanted them to settle. And what we're seeing is settling of the dust more than there's a million reasons to be positive. There's still a lot of reasons to be concerned, but it seems that everything is starting to settle a little bit. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. We are back, baby. Welcome to the GTM podcast. This is our monthly bonus episode, and I get to welcome back a very special guest. Uh, You may have known him from bonus episode two bonus episodes ago. I am joined by Paul Irving, our principal and platform director. What's up, brother? How you doing? They couldn't keep me on. I locked Max out of the podcast studio. I got the taste of getting on the GTM pod and they couldn't keep me off for more than that. More than a month in between. It's uh it's great to be back, my friend. Is that is that who's been banging on the door all morning long? He just uh he can't get in? <laughs> I I told him to be quiet. I told him nothing was going on. Um, but maybe he's caught on. I love it. So Max is actually over in Rome taking his first vacation of the year with his family, eating all the meats and all the cheeses. Uh, I'm very, very jealous. Uh, but we are are holding it down in Vancouver. Um, how's the summer been going, man? It's been going well. I should mention, I don't know if Max looks like he's eating all the meats and cheeses yet. I saw a photo on LinkedIn. He's looking like he got in shape. Behind our backs, uh, just in time for summer. So kudos to him. He's doing a better job than I am. Um, yeah, he, but it's been he's good. He's been keeping that on the DL, I think. He's not letting us know. He's just going to show up to our retreat in Napa all jacked, and we're, we're going to look like slouches. But he's going to show know, us man. up again. I, I've been getting my hot yoga in. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm very, as you know, very competitive. So now I got to kick it into high gear. Well, you both are doing much better than I am. It's been a really good summer, and I know we're going to jump into some of the travel stuff, but. It's been busy, uh, not seeing any lull from the GTM fund side of things and not seeing too much of a lull either across the market, across startups, across other venture firms and partners that we know well, which I know we're going to dig into. So it's been a great summer. We've had beautiful weather here in Vancouver and there's been tons of travel, lots of uh, stuff going on. It's been it's been exciting. Yeah, man. I feel like I got bamboozled because before I got into VC land, I was told that there is a summer lull, right? You see like on Twitter and all these things, everyone's like at living their best life in the in the summer and everyone's like, oh no, like funding rounds, like they, they slow down and no one's really raising money in the summer. And that seemed nice. It's kind of like the the teacher trade-off where you work your ass off, but then, you know, you have two months of maybe quiet time. But uh, that is just simply not true, at least since we started this fund. Uh, sometimes I feel like summers are even busier. Um, do you think that's a factor of, hey, we're a startup emerging fund, you know, and, and that's a, a factor of just us building this thing? Or do you think maybe this year in particular is a little bit different just given the market? I like to believe that the waters of Lake Tahoe and the beaches of south of France are still not doing too bad, despite it being a little <laughs> bit uh, busier in the VC landscape this summer. I still think there's activity going on out there. Um, but I actually do think this year is a little bit different. There's going to be a factor of 
you know, us growing and scaling and building, and we've got you know more exciting announcements coming up soon, which is fantastic. But I think there's a general trend in the macro environment, which has played a big role into this as well. You saw Carta actually releasing some interesting data after the close of Q2, just seeing an increase in valuations in rounds post-Series A, uh, so B, C, D, uh, smaller sample sizes than you would have seen in 2021, uh, 2020, of course, but still an uptick in both velocity of deals and the valuation of those deals. My guess is, and there's a lot of theses out there on what's exactly happening and why, I think it's a product of people sitting on the sidelines a lot in 2022, waiting for the market to settle. And there's always going to be a timeline for the funds that you are looking to deploy. And at a certain point, when you start feeling comfortable that the, either the macro environment out there is improving enough that your models start to make sense again, or you're just seeing great companies and great companies still need to get funded. Uh, but we're seeing an uptick in volume. I mean, the NASDAQ is 30% year to date as the time we're recording this. Public markets have generally rallied. June inflation data was really healthy. 12 months of decreases in a row. And there's still a lot of noise and a lot of data out there to be concerned about. But I would guess that some of the increase in velocity is just from people who spend a little bit more time on the sidelines than normal in the past year and a bit and are starting to feel comfortable and starting to feel a little, more, a little bit more of the pressure of, you know, we have to start deploying this fund and there's still great companies out there. So you just mentioned a lot of positive signals there. Uh, are you overall have a pretty positive sentiment on the trend of, you know, both the private and the public markets right now? I think it's all relative. If we wanted to spend and make this podcast longer, I could come up with a bunch of negative data that the sky is falling and we could all be incredibly worried by the end of it. But I think there is more positive data that this might not be as hard of a, of a landing as a lot of people were theorizing early this year and late last year, um, or even middle of last year, if you want to pull it back even farther. Interest rates have settled a little bit. Uh, it's clear that the Fed and central banks across the world are taking a little bit more of a pause after one of the fastest rate hike increases in history. That's good. I, I think even when you look at how high interest are going to be, people want some equilibrium to form whatever number that might be. You pull the chart back historically and, and the interest rate levels that we're at now are not abnormal by any stretch of the imagination. I think people just wanted them to settle. And what we're seeing is settling of the dust more than there's a million reasons to be positive. There's still a lot of reasons to be concerned, but it seems that everything is starting to settle a little bit. And that's when people can start making long-term investments, start building a thesis uh, that they expect to hold for a period of time that's longer than one month or one quarter, which is seemingly how we've been living for the past year and a half, um, quarter by quarter, month by month, looking at the data and trying to figure out what the most likely path forward is for the economy. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point of view. And, you know, that kind of resonates with this idea that we might not exactly know where we're going yet, but our vision isn't as cloudy now. We can kind of see the pathways in front of us um, so people can make those those decisions. And, you know, something from my perspective too was, you know, you mentioned people waiting on their hands. There is also, things got really hard over the last year. So it does seem like a lot of the tourist founders, tourist VCs, people that were half in, half out, uh, who maybe thought this was easier are are leaving or kind of got pushed out or not starting companies anymore. They're taking a path to security 
Um, and so you're kind of just left with these maniacally obsessed people. And I don't think maniacally obsessed founders or VCs give a shit whether it's the summer or what month it is. They're just going to find the best deals, build the best companies and and make things happen. So it's, it's kind of a cool transition to see. Um, but pulling back, so going back to kind of what we've been up to this month, you and I were, were very fortunate to go to Hong Kong. Uh, we went to New York. We went to Toronto. I went to Philly, spent a little time in Bali just for personal uh, vacation. Uh, but uh, Hong Kong was a pretty, pretty special experience. It was cool to be able to share that with you. And I don't know if people know this, but we were actually on like a U.S. trade mission, uh, which was super interesting. Uh, what was some of your your favorite parts of of that trip? And maybe we'll talk through some some learnings uh, over there. It was great to be back. I had been to Hong Kong only once before. It's it's one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh, I'm I hate the word foodie, so I don't want to classify myself as that. But I I do care. A you lot are about, a foodie. You it's, it, oh, it's just the label. You can find a better me. word, but. <laughs> All right. Any listeners out there that have a better term for foodie that I would be excited to label myself as? I'm I'm open ears, uh, but a food I care connoisseur, about, you know, my friend. A food connoisseur. <laughs> I'll take that. That's a good placeholder. We'll put food connoisseur in there for now. But it's just one of the best food cities in the world. Um, it was great to be there. I think we landed and tried to find somewhere to eat at you know 11 p.m. after getting in late. We found this Peking duck place just around the corner from where we were staying that was unbelievable. Uh, took you to Tim Ho Wan. For some dim sum in a subway station, you had to trust me. We had to wait, you know, half an hour to get into a subway station dim sum place, but that was incredible. Cheapest Michelin star uh, restaurant in the world, right? I believe so. I think it still holds that crown, uh, but just, you know, unbelievable meal. And then a very cool city, um, very alive, bustling, and we were busy the whole time too. So I'm sure you could give a little bit more context of what... Uh, what the actual days looked like, but it was, you know, it was no rest for the wicked when we were there. Yeah, it was, it was wild. Uh, so we had dinner actually at the U S consulate general's house that sits on this like huge compound overlooking Hong Kong. We were there with a handful of other VC private equity firms, uh, real estate developers, uh, that came over from, from North America and met a bunch of institutions and family offices and high net worth individuals over in, uh, in Hong Kong, that was a pretty pretty special experience. There's clearly a lot going on in Hong Kong. There's a lot of wealth. There's a lot of money. A lot of great businesses being formed. Uh, and then the next day, which was crazy, you and I had six straight hours of back to back to back pitches. I think we did 16 pitches in a row, like 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes each. And I've never in my career, I don't think, no, definitely not done that level of in-person back-to-back, no rest. Like I, I think I ran one time to go to the bathroom and, and that was it. Um, so it started really like understanding our value prop even better. Uh, there was a lot of great questions. I guess just, just the learning was that was, that was pretty, pretty intense. It was the, someone from the U S consulate general's office before it started said, uh, we actually make money selling diapers before the pitches because you can't go to the bathroom. You're in there for five hours straight and you can't, you know, enough time to do anything. And so they weren't joking. Um, it was, it was really interesting. And we also learned, you know, talking to some really smart investors while we were there, 
asset class comparisons, how that differs mm-hmm. internationally, what people's priorities are, what people's priorities are from a return perspective, from a time period perspective. Uh, I know real estate in the area has just been a boom for multiple decades, and you're always sort of benchmarked against the performance of that asset class. And it's, it was interesting, a lot of smart people, and uh, I think a really great experience for, for GTM Fund as a whole. And it should be f- fruitful for, uh, for future funds for us. Um, you know, it was interesting to see the, yeah, the difference between kind of perception of VC over in Hong Kong versus US. I would say they're slightly behind in their kind of education of venture capital as an asset class. Uh, I think they're just waking up to the risk profile of like growth stage firms. And, you know, we play earlier and that seems like still new to them. Uh, but it seems like they're, they're starting to, to get there, um, which will be cool to see when that, you know, floodgate ultimately does open because it, because it will. Um, and then the other kind of learning too was uh, it's just a little more complex than it maybe used to be to actually transfer money and wealth uh, in and outside of, of Hong Kong and, and China. Yeah, it's tech has been an international enterprise for a while. Uh, and so it's going to be interesting to see venture capital become, and you've seen it over the past several years, but I think it's pretty clear if you want to pull back uh, from 20,000 feet and, and see that venture capital is going to become an international game if it, if it hasn't started becoming that already. And then, so we're in Hong Kong, we fly back, we have a big uh, executive you know, LP uh, dinner in New York, which was awesome. Uh, shout out for Seismic for partnering with us on that one. Uh, we had about 40 people uh, show up, which was cool. And then we did the same thing in in Toronto, literally like right after I uh, flew in for Collision Conference. I had about 28, 30, 30 folks there, partnered with Oyster on that one. Um, that's always fun. I also love getting the Canadian community together. It's a, it's a growing ecosystem and it's it's we're very fortunate to have some of the like top top players in canada around uh, one dinner table it was a lot of fun we joked around going into it thinking you know, let's do the toronto dinner around collision we'll get people from all over the place and then i think we got 98 percent torontonians anyway uh but some really fantastic people both dinners were great i tried my hardest to join you in New York. I got caught up in those crazy flight cancellations with thunderstorms going into every single New York City airport. I was on a 1 a.m. red eye to Toronto to try and hop, skip, and jump. Rent a car, drive across the border maybe to meet you in New York and make it happen. But you, uh, like a pro, hosted a, a 40-person executive dinner solo because I couldn't couldn't get there in time. But both of them uh, a great success, and as you mentioned, yeah, big thanks to, to Seismic and Oyster for partnering with us on yeah, those. Yeah, eight thousand flights were were canceled. I feel like they could have made a movie though of like Paul trying to make it to New York. You were really exhausting every option, and by the end, I was like, "Listen, man, I'm good. I, I've I've done a lot of these dinners. We're we're good. I appreciate the the effort though. The uh, Heraculean Heraculean is that a word? I think I don't know. I'm gonna it is now. Uh, effort to to get there i just imagine we had an executive dinner in toronto the next night and imagine me in a broken down car blow <laughs> or something and i never made it to either one uh so we thought let's let's um you know diversify our risk here a little bit and i'll stay in toronto you stay in new york uh and you made it up for the toronto one as well no problems on that flight so 
a ton of fun. Always great to get the community together in person. Totally, totally. Um, all right, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, this is a story-based podcast, and I like to bring in some stories, even in the, the bonus episode. Um, you want to share an insider story from maybe this past month with one of our, our founders or our LPs, just some cool things that kind of come from building this this community. Yeah, I'll do I'll do a quick one and we included it in our in our monthly update which we share internally uh, with our GTM executives and LPs, but it's very obvious on the surface to know the power of network. It's introductions to your next hires and executives. It's warm introductions into accounts you're looking to sell into. It's back channeling. Those things are incredibly valuable, but I I think what people often overlook is the power of network when you have a certain scale or a certain value of the people that are in that network. And we had some really cool stories happen in the last month, but these happen all the time. We just wanted to highlight them. A couple of our founders and really the power of the GTM network, but you could parlay that into the power of any really incredible network uh, for our team. So we have one, and I'll be careful not to divulge too many details because they're still in stealth, but um, a company of ours that we had invested in recently shared some details with one of our GTM leaders and outside of their long time operating career as a CRO, have a side business with their wife uh, that happens to be the ICP of that company. And so when they found out about this investment and we were talking through it, they said, let me find some time with the founder, came away from that. And I got, I got an email from the founder with a bullet pointed list of all the things that were helpful. We spent one hour together. I have my first three design partners. Um, which this LP volunteered to be uh, for the business. I have a bunch of GTM strategy and approach and advice. I've rethought how I'm taking the product to market. And hopefully if we keep kicking ass, I might have my sales leader of the future and not too too distant uh, future, which is really, really cool to hear. And so the layers that happen with that when you have the right people in the network and can make those connections are just invaluable. We had another one uh, that I'll briefly allude to, uh, Kibzi. So congratulations to the Kibzi team. They announced their um, latest round of funding just last month as well. Uh, but they're in the computer vision space, can transform your CCTV network into invaluable business insights by you know processing unstructured data into any really business case or use case that your business would find valuable. We have one of our... Uh, Great GTM leaders, Juan George, JG, who I believe has been on the podcast previously, was at Olo from Seed Stage through IPO, reached out to me when Kibzi announced and said, hey, I've been looking at how to apply this technology in the restaurant vertical for a while. Would love to meet with the founders. I can share all of our findings about how this technology can be leveraged and applied in a vertical, which we know, you know is going to be a vertical of interest for them as they scale. And Beyond just GTM strategy advice, introductions, you'd see the layers. The iceberg analogy is so overused, but I think it's true here. There's the very obvious value, and then you have the untapped potential beneath that, which we're seeing it more and more. But smart founders and smart executive teams, when they're raising funding, being really conscious of what networks I'm bringing on to support my company as we grow, as we scale. And how am I going to leverage them? Because the power is is hard to quantify, even if you think you know the surface value. I love, love hearing stories like that, the not so obvious connections that happen within this. 
community, between our LPs and our founders, between our founders and our founders, our LPs and LPs. It's it's so cool to see above and beyond what we just thought that we could help with initially, which was like, oh, well, all these people have great playbooks. They all have great networks for, you know, customer introductions. And but these things, they, they really are hard, hard to measure the impact, especially at that like early, early stage. Imagine if you could just tell a founder, hey, we've got your first three design partners. Like that can take take months. And especially if there's that like personal connection where they're actually super bought in. Because not every design partner is created equal. You know, you really need someone who is going to think of themselves almost as an, an owner of your your business. And it, it's cool that obviously our LPs think like that because they are um, and uh, that personal connection. But um, that's awesome, man. So here's the last thing I wanted to talk to you about. I think it's, it's interesting. People will find it interesting. It's something we talk a lot about and it's almost an ethos that we uh, adopted uh, pretty heavily internally. And that's this idea of a flight to quality. So people may have heard that before. Uh, it has, I think Bain was the original one who, who wrote it, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but can you walk through what that means? And then maybe we'll talk through how we sort of adopted it as our, our ethos. Yeah, the, the flight to quality, and I think it was Merit from the Bain team so wrote a really good article summarizing this at the very beginning of the year. Uh, but the concept is when things get a little bit more challenging, and it's been the case for a long time, you're just starting to feel it. Capital is going to start to flow to the same companies, the best companies. When people get nervous, uh, when people are careful and intentional about where they're investing their time, where they're investing their money, if you're in venture capital, you start to see more and more focus on what you would describe as the top decile of companies from a you know, founder background perspective, from a market opportunity perspective, from an execution perspective. And there's been a time over the past several years when there was so much money in venture capital that almost every seed stage company was getting funding and the series A graduation rates were a complete anomaly if you look at them historically and start to you know pull back multiple decades uh, in SaaS specifically, but you could pull that back across tech generally. And you're starting to see it really acutely. We've talked about it since the early days is we would rather work with an experienced founder, an experienced operator who has deep ties, deep understanding of the problem they're solving, of the market opportunity in front of them, have a network to lean on to execute it in the earliest stages. You know, we want to work with those teams and we're happy to pay you know, a slightly higher price that comes along with that decision. Uh, and I'm, I think you're starting to see across early all the way to growth, a pretty similar mindset. So that's how we would define flight to quality, but, but I'm sure you have some uh, additional context to, to layer onto that. Yeah. And I guess that, that what that means from, you know, uh, a firm perspective is it's now more competitive than ever, you know, for those top 1% deals. And if you don't have a super defined differentiation of what is the value you bring beyond capital, and we talk about capital plus all the time, then it's going to be really hard for you to get a piece of those, those deals. And so I think that's for us, you know, we've taken that flight to quality and be like, okay, how do we fly to quality as a, 
affirm and up level absolutely everything that we're doing so we can showcase you know we have the best go to market operators in the world and you can listen to them on this podcast you can hear uh, what they have to say detailed on our newsletter and then you can be a part of these community and these dinners and these retreats that we do and then of course you know the fun just getting even more operational rigor than we've we've had to date making some key hires we just brought on uh, an analyst, uh, which will be super exciting. Shout out to Amit. Welcome to the team. He was interning for us for a while, um, but it's been it's been really fun, and it, it's fun to grow up as you know, feeling more like a true financial institution now uh, with everything that we have in place and seeing our our win rate in deals because you know we've got a lot of revenue listeners that listen to this and they're always tracking win rate but we track our win rate and i'd say it's pretty damn high you know in the the top top 90 percent um when we want into a deal which is fantastic and it's kudos to again that community that that we get to kind of stand on the shoulders of yeah the bar's been raised uh and that means as any good startup would look at themselves and say the same thing like we need to raise our bar too and uh, kudos to you too and, and Sarah for up leveling you know, the GTM podcast, the newsletter, some of the exciting stuff we have going on the media side of the business. I mean, it all feeds into the flywheel of getting the best revenue operators into the funds, getting them engaged and supporting our founders, uh, and really accelerating what it means to drive value for us when we are on a cap table with our founders. And it's interesting. From a bunch of perspectives, I'm curious to, to know what you think if, if other firms are going to start tweaking or changing or rethinking what their value proposition is, because it's getting more and more competitive to get into these deals. There's there's a lot more people in the room trying to get into the same companies and capital that gets to be put to work. And we're lucky to have a, a clear proposition on what we bring to the table. I'd be curious to know if you think people are going to start you know, rethinking what theirs are as this continues to accelerate. I think. They will have to, they will have to, uh, or they won't make, I think it's like, you need to be a brand name. Brand names will always be great. That's a great signal. You raise from a brand name. You're always going to be able to raise money. They also have incredible networks and provide a lot of value, but, uh, kind of these, these middle ground firms, uh, it's, I think it's going to be tough if you don't have solid differentiation. Again, I always look at it like, like startups, if there's a million startups doing the same thing you're doing, how how are you gonna how are you gonna win? Uh, it just makes it incredibly incredibly difficult. And once you've exhausted your network, like where do you go from there? Uh, and network only gets you so far. So I think everyone is thinking right now about that plus in capital plus uh, and redefining what that means uh, for their specific specific firms. Um, but I think that's it, man. The only thing I wanted to highlight was, I want to tease this out, is on the media side, we do have some very exciting announcements coming up next month, which I really want to talk about. But uh, we'll have to hold on and uh, I'll just leave it at that little cliffhanger before we sign off. Uh, And Paul, I would say goodbye, but I'll see you in about 30 seconds because you're in the office next to me. I, I just can't can't get away from you. 
We have meetings all day, my friend. You cannot escape me even if you wanted to, but it's, it's been a pleasure as always. I love it, man. You're a pro. Thanks for jumping on. And for all those listeners, I appreciate you hanging out with us. I hope that was informative. As I always say, listening is one thing. Executing is everything. Uh, go out there and uh, crush it. We'll see you next week.